At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on another great episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. I am Stephen Dinkle, and I have the pleasure to uh, interview and uh, have a nice discussion with the nation's first Hispanic female governor in its history for the state of New Mexico, Governor Susana Martinez. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been a little while since you actually uh, left office. How's that transition been going? I've been in public service for 32 years. And so on January 1, it was like going 125 miles an hour to a sudden screeching halt. But it's given me some time to uh, kind of sort things out uh, family-wise. I take care of a development and delayed sister full-time as well as I've got involved in some nonprofits. And so it's a different way of living that I'm used to, but it is all, it's all good. And actually, we'll, we'll dive into the nonprofit uh, work that you're doing. I know there's one in uh, North Carolina, right in the backyard of the school, that helps veterans of the wars of uh, fighting terrorism. So when I saw that, that is just... Yep. You don't, you're not hearing much about organizations that are specifically focused on things like that. So that's really cool. And it's right in our backyard. Who would have thought that a governor of New Mexico <laughs> would be working on something in uh, right in smack dab in the middle of North Carolina? So it's exciting. It's exciting because it's, it's to give honor to our veterans that have laid down their lives for us in the Afghan, Afghanistan, Iraqi war and making sure that a memorial is built before it's time. Um, usually you have to wait 10 years. After the war is over, before you can do such a thing, we have gotten a clearance from a waiver from Congress. And so we're moving forward to honor those men and women. That's great. And it's, uh, it's so good that they can have those waivers given. So they're not waiting. Today, I'm, I want to uh, dive into some of your experiences as governor and how your legal education and background contributed to that new role that you did for eight years. And then also uh, being a governor of a border state, talk about some of the immigration issues that you had to deal with, like specifically one of the things that's going to be uh, popping up on people's radars now even more is Real ID. And I know that you uh, had a big part in uh, getting New Mexico compliant with that law. And most everybody, uh, everybody, every state is compliant now or under review, but you battled for a while on that. And that's a big public safety issue there. And then also you made trips down to the border uh, up to, I think up until 2018, right up to the end of your term. Actually, all the way through 2019. Yeah. And so talking about immigration, everybody else can, you know, dive into laws and stuff like that, but you had to implement it. That's a whole different ball of wax, you know? Well, the one thing I want your listeners to know about me is that, number one, I'm a proud American of Mexican descent. My grandfather and grandmother from my father's side were born and raised in Mexico. My grandfather came to the United States and became an American citizen. He applied and went through the process and became an American citizen. My great-grandfather on my father's side also came from Mexico. And so 
I say that because I very much understand that the tapestry of America is made of immigrants from all over the world. What I have emphasized is the public safety of our state as the governor of New Mexico. What we had to make sure is that who was coming across the border was doing so in a legal manner and that we didn't become a magnet because of our laws, the way they existed, that we were giving driver's licenses to anyone who applied for one without verifying, one, that they were citizens or had some legal status in the United States through a visa, any kind of work visa, tourism, whatever it may be, and that they weren't coming to New Mexico just for that purpose is to gain that driver's license that looked just like mine. And if it looked just like mine, then they could go into another state such as, let's say, Wyoming, exchange it for a Wyoming driver's license, and then off into the when they are, and actually they're here in the country illegally. And we don't know the purpose of their being in the United States. Some, yes, come to work for to better their lives, but so many can also get in through the crossing that border that have very poor intentions for the safety of the citizens of New, Me- of New Mexico and, of course, of our country. So how was it dealing with the federal law of Real ID and being compliant with that and trying to take a state that was not compliant? And that was an, an epic battle, so to say, for you. It took many years and even into your second term. How did your role uh, as governor and your background in the legal field, like, that had been incredibly frustrating. It was frustrating, but I think what... Um, your listeners should know is that the law, the Real ID Act, came into play because of 9-11. And because of 9-11, it was enacted in 2005 that we needed, every state had to have a Real ID Act, uh, comply with a Real ID Act. In other words, you had to prove you were an American citizen or you had legal status and that you were a resident of the state in which you were applying for a driver's license. So that happened in 2005. Nothing had been done. Um, there were waivers that were being received, delays that were being received for years. I became governor, and I ran on that platform that I was going to push for the Real ID Act to be complied with with our state of New Mexico, especially being a border state. And so I started in 2011 as governor, and that was one of my um, certainly the issues that I was raising, a bill that was being pushed forward. And not until 2016 did it actually get signed. But as, you know, I'm a criminal justice major, and then I went on to law school in Oklahoma, and I understood the value of understanding the law and the impacts, the intended consequences and the unintended consequences of a law. I understood the value of negotiating, compromising, advocating. And so these are skills that you learn in law school. And I used every one of those year after year. But what was surprising was that the people, there were some people in the legislature that wondered why I didn't give up. And the reason I didn't give up, because I made it part of my platform every single year until it passed, was because it was a federal law that we were going to have to comply with. And it was better under our terms that we were complying with it. And then I negotiated with the legislature so that we had something that was favorable to the citizens of New Mexico, yet in compliance with the federal law. And there was like a two-part 
compliant law that you guys were able to negotiate and get through, one that was completely compliant to the law of Real ID, but then also one that just allowed individuals, if they didn't want to have that Real ID one, to have driving privileges too. So I kind of think that's a kind of a cool way to follow what the law says and then also uh, do a little bit more because you're negotiating continuously. Yeah, you're negotiating and you're compromising. And so the Real ID, your act compliance driver's license, what you needed to have that in order to get into onto federal bases, we have four military bases, three national labs, and all the contractors that work within those facilities, all the employees had to have a Real ID act compliant driver's license. And so when they didn't work for the labs, didn't have to get into federal court, did not have to get onto federal property, and did not need to fly, then they could get what was called just an ID. So it was a New Mexico identification card that said on it not to be used for federal purposes. So that allowed a person, American citizen or non-American citizen, someone here legally or illegally, could get this ID without having access to those other kinds of facilities that you'd had to then, for sure, in those instances, you needed to have a real ID compliant uh, and I know, license. And I know it's going to be on everybody's radar now and a lot of everybody's uh, doing their own livelihood and, and they're like, what is this Real ID Act? It's coming up in October, folks. You know, yeah. and I know it's a big thing in North Carolina too, because there's Camp Lejeune, you know, there's Fort Bragg, there's all these different organizations out there. And you have big airports out there. If you don't have a passport, you got to be compliant. And it's and it's and it's huge. And it's nice to know that like to hear on compromise while you were governor and your legal background, you got all those training. Who would have thought that you would have learned in law school how to all those skills that would have came in Andy uh, as your term as governor. Uh, and that's just one bill. That's right. That's just <laughs> one bill of uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that you end up negotiating on and sometimes not necessarily compromising because you don't want to give up your core principles. But at the same time, you have to understand that you have to get through that which will comply with federal law. Because otherwise, you're right. You'd have to get in onto an airplane and to get past Security, you would have to show a passport to be able to board a plane. And New Mexicans didn't want to do that. They didn't want to have to go apply for a passport for those who didn't have one. It's expensive, and to have to carry that was unnecessary. And so I was real glad that at the end we, we came into compliance. It has um, not been difficult uh, to implement most, if not all the country. I think a few are pending review. But um, the United States had to come together and comply with the 2005 law that was imposed. 50 uh, different opinions, all trying to be under one umbrella has to be a kind of a hard feat to accomplish. I kind of want to do a creative step back and rewind to your role as prosecutor uh, down south in a, a country, uh, not a country. <laughs> We're in America, folks. Uh, no, <laughs> it's, in a, it's New Mexico. You're right. <laughs> in a, New Mexico is a, is a state, actually. There's a funny little uh, joke if who's listening uh, doesn't know that, that people ask, are you guys a state? Yes, we are. <laughs> As a prosecutor, you were in a county that was right on the border, Donana County. And that's really, really close to El Paso. If people know uh, El Paso, Texas. How did, you know, you went right into prosecuting right after law school, at, right in that area. So how was it like prosecuting in a border county? It, it, that has to be, you see way different things than you would if you were in even northern New Mexico or anywhere in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, you're talking immigration here. 
that was right up your alley. Well, I think what a little bit about my background is that I was born and raised in El Paso. And El Paso is only oh, we our county, Doniana County, where I was a prosecutor, and El Paso County, they touch each other except for a state line in between them. And so the experiences I had growing up in El Paso were very similar. Immigration, you could see people crossing the Mexican River. Um, they would come across the Rio Grande and into the El Paso. We would see people as I was driving down uh, the border freeway. That would happen every day. I mean, we, it was just something we lived with. I became a prosecutor in 1986 and understood at that very moment walking in that a lot of crimes are committed for example, we had folks who were trying to get driver's licenses at that point before even 9-11 in order to get through saying that they were U.S. citizens, but we had investigations go on going because we knew that they were actually here to sell narcotics, actually here to sell firearms or purchase firearms, but showing that they were U.S. citizens because they had a real driver's license that looked like mine. And so we had, we did experience a lot of issues with American citizens committing crimes on the border, as well as people from other parts of the country and the world. And I think that's what people don't understand. It's not just Mexicans. It's, they come through the path of least resistance. And that border is right on the Mexican border, the county that I was the prosecutor. And so it takes you all of about a 10-second walk across the Rio Grande um, because it doesn't have water down in the southern part of the mm -hmm. state. And you just walk across and you are in the United States. And so we experienced a lot of people who were committing crimes, had a lot of people who were working in the fields, wanted to work, wanted to send money back to their homes in Mexico or other parts of the world because, unfortunately, there were jobs that Americans didn't want. But they were willing to work and work for their families and hopefully get back to their families and not make America necessarily a choice, uh, but just a way to make their livelihood better for their families. And I know to the last few years of your uh, tenure as governor, that was when a lot of the media picked up on the different um, scenarios that are going on at the border still right now. How do you enforce the law of the federal government, but then also, you know, understanding with your background prosecuting there so long, like, how do you marry the two? You, you know, you have to follow the federal law, but then you have, you know, the laws of your state. That had to have been incredibly frustrating. It is frustrating, um, but we have a partnership. Because we're on a border, we had to have a partnership with Border Patrol, with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, because when there is an arrest, whether it be just simply for coming across illegally, if there's a person in, in living within my county that's a victim of a crime, for example, domestic violence, but the partner happens to be an American citizen. Well, sometimes they hold that over their head of the illegal immigrant that if you call 911, they're going to deport you. Well, I stepped in and saying, wait, I know there's a U visa that allows me to hold that person accountable for beating this woman. And I want this person to stay in the United States, participate in the prosecution of this individual. And I would sign U visas, which would allow me to keep them here, allow them to come to court and part, be part of that process. Because I never wanted them to fear calling 911 when they were unsafe or had become a victim of a crime. And so 
we have to work together because I can't issue a U visa. It has to come from the federal government. But I applied for those U visas and received them every time. But at the same time, when Border Patrol catches someone who has a criminal background, they're referred to the federal prosecutors right away. Sometimes we end up with people who are committing crimes like robbing a store or burglarizing somebody's home that we find out are here in the country from wherever in the world illegally. And so we have to put a hold on them because they're a flight risk. And so I can't just let them out the door or argue, go ahead, judge, let them go, because then I won't find them to hold them accountable for breaking into someone's house or holding up a convenience store. And so you have to work with every single law enforcement entity as a prosecutor. And then when I became governor, you have to work with, again, Customs, ICE, Border Patrol, as well as the National Guard, which I did have some control of. And if memory serves me right, you you did call the National Guard of, of New Mexico down to the border to help the Border Patrol down there. Exactly. I did. And what a lot of folks don't, they get a little mixed up is that National Guard was never meant to enforce federal law. They can't. It's it's not part of their responsibilities. However, if they were in the shops fixing the vehicles that Border Patrol is driving up and down the you know the roads, checking to see along the riverbanks, uh, fixing the tires, the engines, changing oil, making sure the four wheelers are working, that the shoes on the horses have been, you know horses have been shoed and properly because they go by horseback as well. Also monitoring any kind of uh, computer and visually seeing whether or not someone's coming across. All they would do is radio Border Patrol. Border Patrol had to take care of all things. They never enforced those laws. But it allowed the limited resources of the men and women in Border Patrol to do their job out in the field instead of in a garage fixing cars or watching a monitor when they're the only ones that had the power to be able to enforce those immigration laws. Yeah, that has, that's definitely not a lot of things that people uh, discuss often is like, because the imagery is, oh, you're sending the National Guard down to the border, but not to enforce the law, it's to help out, that's to right. let the people who are supposed to enforce the law do that portion and we'll help with all the other things that they don't need to you know spend their time on, so to say. Exactly, because they're, they're, we have limited border patrol agents on the border and it was that the El Paso sector is one of the busiest sectors along the U.S.-Mexican border. And so we're low on the number of people, best have them doing their job and National Guard helping as a support system. Now, another one of the big immigration issues that was just recently argued in front of the Supreme Court of the United States is uh, the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. How did that come to play with yours, if any, in in your role as governor? Because I know there were a lot of heated discussions about it here, but was that really kind of almost uh, something that wasn't necessarily relevant to being governor, or was that something that really was on your desk a bunch? Well, certainly it's not anything that I had anything to do with in the sense of making a decision whether or not children that were brought to the United States by their parents while they were children could or could not remain in the United States. No governor had that power. It was actually uh, a federal issue. Um, However, uh, President Barack Obama on his own made that decision. And so as a lawyer, I had to analyze whether or not a president had the right, the power 
to make such a decision on his own. And instead of leaving that to the legislature. Because he did it by executive order, correct? That's right. He did it by executive order. And as a lawyer, I look at process as well as the issue itself and whether it's something that is positive or negative for the country. The process, I think, was flawed. It should have gone to the legislature. We would have loved it to go to the legislature so that we could have seen uh, some real positive immigration reform for not just America, but for those folks that need to come here that we also need as part of our economy. But instead, I think President Obama did it wrong. But it became an executive order. And I hope that the legislature, once they get done with all that is currently happening, (laughs) that they get serious about some serious uh, immigration reform that includes DACA, includes those They are now many of them adults, but they came here as young ones that didn't have a say-so, went to our schools, participated in our universities, and are building careers and families, Mm -hmm. that that is something that is possible as part of a comprehensive immigration reform. I think people should be allowed to be given legal status. Not amnesty, but legal status and maybe at one point will lead to citizenship because not everybody wants citizenship or wants amnesty. And so the legal status will free them of that fear if DACA becomes a part of the process and that the legislature, who really is the body who should be taking care of this, um, does that um, and hopefully I, quickly. And I believe that was the issue why I was brought up to the Supreme Court was that uh, the current administration got rid of that rule and they're saying that it wasn't done correctly on getting rid of the rule. And it's kind of reverting back to the whole argument of Congress, the legislature needs to do it. So it's it's interesting. People, I guarantee, don't think about an executive order and what does a governor have to do in analyzing that? What does their administration have have to do, especially since it wasn't handed down by an act of Congress signed into law? It's a whole different realm of possibility. So I bet your background as a a lawyer kind of helped because you were able to read these things and go, okay, I I can understand it better than probably a lot of other people. It, It was easier for me. I mean, certainly you surround yourself with good people and good lawyers as well. And I like the debate, certainly, with other lawyers. But Can you imagine that any law that is passed by the legislature or by Congress and then it is ignored by the president or a governor by simply signing an executive order? Then what is the point in Mm -hmm. Congress or legislature to enact laws that all you have to do is sign a, a sheet of paper and saying, we're going to defer that implementation of that law? Well, where did that power come from? It doesn't exist. Right. I kind of want to take a a step back from immigration and uh, just ask some other things about your law experience and your uh, uh, 25 years of prosecuting, right? Yes. Do you miss it? I loved that job. That was an amazing job and hard to leave. What got you into prosecuting? Well, it was one of the first jobs I applied for, and I got a call after I passed the bar, and I was offered a position. I walked in, didn't know that this would be a career sat down with three little girls my first two weeks, and they were four, five, and six years old. These three little girls had been sexually abused by every male in their family, Mm. from grandfather to fathers to boyfriends to uncles, et cetera. And the case was handed to me to figure out, quote, unquote. And you were a 
a lot pup, so oh, to say, yeah. right? You, oh, yeah. I you was a newbie. The, the ink was still drying on your license. <laughs> I was an absolute newbie, and I was in a realm that the law school didn't teach me. Wow. No law school teaches you these sorts of specialties. They teach you how to think like a lawyer. They teach you how to analyze case law and how to analyze a whole lot of things. But They're definitely not teaching you how to talk to three, four, five, and six-year-olds no. about that subject at all. Absolutely not. And so I immediately after two weeks figured out um, I don't know enough and I need to go get more education. And so I then made it a career of prosecuting cases that involved children in physical abuse, sexual abuse, child homicide, anything that had to do with children I did for 25 years, but constantly educating myself. If you think you have learned everything that's necessary in law school. I actually walked out of law school not being sure how to even enter a courtroom, except for I was on the trial team. Um, so I sort of could fake it a little bit for a little <laughs> while. But then you have to learn from others. You have to be mentored by somebody on when to stand up, when to sit down, what to say, how to say it, how to how to even examine or cross-examine a child, how to use different kinds of words, language. And so I felt that continuing education was very helpful. It taught me how to be a lawyer and think like a lawyer. That's what one of my professors said. That it did. But the mechanics of it, walking out, is, is, is still continuing to learn. And you almost have to learn by exposure, right? Oh, yeah. You, you, you kind of get chucked in there. And yeah, you have that foundation for mm -hmm. you. But it's not something to be shy about. It's, it's new. Right. Yeah. And you got to you got to just roll up your sleeves and deal with whatever you're going into. Oh, yeah. And you do that in, in reference to prosecution in science. For example, I had cases with blood spatter or, you know, any kind of shrapnel from sh a shooting or gangs, just learning about gangs. One of my professors uh, uh, in, in tort law even said that she had to learn about a certain type of accounting in her tort case. Yep. And it's just, you got to be always continuously learning. And uh, that's a, a great bit of advice, which kind of actually segued it into one, what I was going to ask you next is for somebody to get involved in prosecuting, what would be your advice on, on doing that? Because I know there's a lot of glamour behind, you know, defense attorneys and, you know, you have all the, the uh, I don't know, even know the glitz and glamour from TV shows and all that. But prosecuting is very tough. It's a very... I would say, thankless job, right? Like a lot of people don't go up to, a, you know, the DAs and say, hey, thanks for what you're doing, right? Because they don't, everybody doesn't know all like the docket level that you have or had. It's tough. So what would you, um, what would be that advice for the student that is passionate about prosecuting, but just not sure yet? You know, the one thing that I did when I first became a prosecutor was to be a sponge. I was I was also interning in law school. So that's important as a law student is to intern in a couple of places if you're able to, because then you'll determine whether or not civil law is your kind of thing. Writing briefs for me was not my kind of thing. Courtroom, actual courtroom prosecution, doing trials was exactly where I belonged. And I learned that as an intern. Now, once you're a prosecutor, it is the most rewarding job that I have found outside of being governor because you are touching people's lives. You get to know who they are. You know them by name, their families by name. There's a cause that this person become go from being a victim to a survivor, that there's some justice that has to come with it. But knowing that the scars will remain with whatever kind of 
you know, injury they may have suffered. I dealt a lot with violent crimes and, of course, children crimes, gang cases. How do you communicate with a gang member? How do you get them to be your witness? I mean, just a variety of things that you're not used to in life. Well, and your prosecution experience bled into your governorship with the passage of Katie's Law, right? With That's That right. was the, the Suppick family, right? If I, yeah, right? Seppich. Yeah, and you learned that. Mm-hmm. While prosecuting, mm-hmm. and you got and learned, and you know, met the whole family, and those are things that can segue into uh, outside of you know your legal career. Absolutely. And Katie Sepich was a young college girl in the county that I was living in. She was kidnapped, murdered, raped, uh, and then dumped into a site. Some flammable fluid was poured on her, and she was put to flames, trying to get rid of evidence. Uh, however, she fought back, and there was DNA under her fingernails. And so, um, however, during the forensic exams, they took that DNA, uploaded it into a national database, believing that was the offender's, and that offender's DNA was not in the system yet. It was three years later, and we made a definitive match because he was still committing crimes. And so once he was convicted, we took that DNA, it was a match. We found her murderer, convicted him, sentenced him to life plus something like 60 years. And we shouldn't have to wait till conviction. And so we changed and fought for the law while I was DA to take the DNA upon the arrest of every person of a felony, violent or not. But all we got at that point was violent. When I became governor, I fought for all felony crimes. And it is amazing the unsolved crimes that have been solved because of that change. And people now are being held accountable when before they weren't. That just hearing the, the story that the things that you experienced as a prosecutor and then even the things that the stories and all the issues that you faced as governor, what would you say the benefits and the downsides are of having an important job of both of those? Like that has, how does that weighs on your soul? It has to. So like, what would you say to that, that same person trying to become a prosecutor or, or considering maybe running for public office of some sort down the line? How do you manage that? There are cases that will mark you forever. But I think what's most important is every single day that you're in office, your job as a prosecutor is to bring justice. It's not to have a gut feeling that someone is guilty and therefore I'm going to go after somebody or, you know, I really think this guy's a scumbag, so I'm going to go after this. But no. You either have facts, evidence, proof. Your gut doesn't mean anything when you are a prosecutor. And so you have to be someone who follows laws carefully and then brings people who are accountable to justice. I think my highest pay as a prosecutor was something like, as a lawyer, was something like $52 an hour. Very different from private practice. Right. Uh, Substantially, if I I know some other lawyers out there. (laughs) But it wasn't for me about the money. And, you know, in newspapers, unfortunately, crime is on the front page or the first story that comes out in the news. And so people are holding you accountable. They're watching a prosecutor and how they're handling themselves and how they're handling a case. And are you just prosecuting people and losing cases because you're not prepared prosecuting cases because you don't have the evidence and you're losing? I mean, or are you taking cases that should be prosecuted? And so it does weigh on you, but it's one that didn't bother me. And as long as I could have a home, 
a new car every now and then. It was my passion. And you were, and it sounds like just how you describe it, you were focused on the mission and the mission was justice. Yeah. And so that is kind of a, not enlightening, but kind of a, you know, a shining light down, down the road for somebody. Yeah. You're going to face a lot of tough things and this is real life. Like that's what I've been learning as a student. When you're reading these cases, it's like, oh, this really happened. Yeah. From a tort thing, you know, to a criminal act. Absolutely. This really happened. And, and, and as a prosecutor, I'm not kidding you. I mean, especially kiddo cases. Those kiddos would come to my office young, 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, 13. And the young ones, I would sit down when we'd pull out a color book. We wouldn't talk anything about the case. They needed to know who I was. And we would sit down in color and I would talk to them about certain, you know, school and brother, sister, friends, um, something of interest to them. And they'd leave because we had to create a relationship where they weren't afraid of me. I'm a stranger. And then I'd introduce them to the judge because here comes someone off the bench in a cape that looks like Batman. <laughs> right. And, and that's a little scary to someone who's six or seven or eight. And then they feel they're at fault. So how do you get into that psychology as well to saying it's my job as a prosecutor, not your job to win. It's my job to tell the judge and these other people that are going to decide, but I'm the one who's going to do it, not you. You're going to help me, but it's up to me. So there's all of these things at play that you have to be aware of. And then I ran for four times. I ran four times to be the elected district attorney because I wanted to create the policy in the office as well, as an administrator, not just a prosecution piece. And I was elected the first time and then reelected three times after that. And then in the middle of that one, I ran for governor. And uh, two Pete there, yes. right? And two time governor. And that was uh, up until uh, January 1 of 2019, right? That's right. Yes. Since I asked how you, what you miss of being a prosecutor, what do you miss about being governor? If anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being governor is an amazing job. I, I miss the work. I wish we could get rid of all of the, you know, I think Americans are kind of tired of the backbiting nastiness of the politics of your positions. And if I could just sort of get rid of half, even just half of the backbiting pol political kind of arena, the work is amazing. Because you can change lives long term with different laws and bills that that you're passing and, and infrastructure that you're building in a little town that still has clay pipes and therefore has arsenic running in their, you know, through their pipes in their homes. But you can now do a water system that improves their lives and those of the community. You could do some amazing work. And so what I miss the most is going to schools and sitting down crisscross applesauce in a classroom and reading a book with kiddos and bringing a couple of them up to sit with me and help me. But we were all at eye level because by then I had already learned what I had learned about children that don't sit up in a chair higher than them, sit down low with them. They read on the floor, sit on a crisscross with them, get them engaged. And that I miss a lot because education was a huge piece for me. If we're not educating our children immediately, we can lose an entire generation. I was governor for eight years. If we did not implement any reforms to improve our education, those are eight years worth of school. And now they're going to start entering into high school unprepared. And I was refusing to allow that to happen. What a, going back into 
education, you know, even as a graduate school type of thing, how did your education in law help you as a governor? Well, my education in law certainly helped me in understanding, you know, the process of the three branches of government and understanding where my power began and where it ended as governor, where the same for the legislature and the same for the judiciary. Sometimes those law, those things got a little blurred in, in New Mexico. And I kept doing the pushback, as I should, as an advocate, to saying, stay in your lane. This is your lane, and I, I'll stay in my lane. But I think it helps you first to understand the process on how this happens, but certainly as well as meeting with the legislators, meeting with people, just like I met with families and victims and explaining the process and trying to explain my agenda to a legislator and saying, do you see where education is super important? That if you, a kid is not reading by the time they leave the third grade, that child's not going to continue to read to learn for the rest of their lives. And that's why this reform is important. So advocacy is part of it. And, and I learned that in law school and certainly as being a prosecutor. I don't think I'd ever be any kind of lawyer other than a prosecutor. That to me was the most fulfilling, daily different kind of lawyering that anybody can ask for. What kind of advice would you give for um, any like legal professionals who are considering running for office? You kind of alluded to there's a first job you applied for to be a prosecutor, but then you ran and that's a whole different realm. So what advice would you give to people going in the law, you know, coming out of law school now, trying to get where they need to go, applying for that first prosecution job or people that are, you know, prosecution veterans and want to get more involved? What advice would you give them? You know, whenever you run for office, you have to be all in, absolutely all in. And certainly when I ran for office in 1996, was very different than when I ran for office in 2008 and 2009, or 2009-10, I think it is. We weren't as kind of crass as sometimes uh, running for office can be these days. However, you'd be prepared as a candidate. You have got to know your stuff. You can't do these superficial statements of, you know, I, I plan to bring justice. Well, what does that mean? Uh, or I plan to, you know, do better. Or, you know, those, how? People want to know how you're going to make them feel safe in their homes, in school? How are you going to hold people accountable? You have to have an agenda and you have to go to places where sometimes because of your party affiliation, you might feel uncomfortable going to those other places because they're not of the same party affiliation. They deserve the right to know who you are and the opportunity to cross party lines if they think you're the right one to hold that position. And lastly, to fulfill Campbell University's mission is to lead with purpose. How we like to wrap up our episodes on uh, the Campbell Law Reporter is, what does that mean to you? What does leading with purpose mean? Leading with purpose is to always remember what your mission is. I always had to remember why I was doing my particular job and understand the boundaries of it. But when you lead with purpose... You're bringing people with you. Um, you're surrounding yourself, of course, with the best because you, you, you cannot be all things to all people. And you have to remember that. You cannot have all the answers. You cannot have all the different ideas to debate them amongst your team. 
And so to lead, you have to take in those ideas. To lead with purpose is, for example, the Real Idea Act that we talked about earlier. I didn't stop. They thought by year three, they would have beaten me down and I would give it up. And it's like, no, I'm not that kind of person. I don't give up. If it's right, if it's lawful, if it is public safety behind the reason to do this, then no, I am strong and I will continue to fight for these things. But you also have to understand as a leader, you have to have a really thick skin today. You know, in the year 2019, 18, and going into 20, you have to have a really thick skin. With social media and all the things that go on, don't ever let someone take you off your purpose because it's too hard. It is hard. And know it's hard. And remember your mission. And most importantly, remember the promises that you've made to those people that have elected you and deliver on those promises. That is leading with purpose and coming back and being able to tell them these things have been accomplished as I promised you I would. Well, thank you, Governor. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If uh, people want to maybe get a hold of you or learn more about you, because I don't know if uh, North Carolina got any of your ads, so to say, that we're playing. Uh, how do people get a hold of you? On SusannaMartinez.com, I have a webpage, and there's some contact information on there as well and some of the things that we did as governor. Thank you, Governor, for your time, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.